Good morning. You know, as we think about the series that has been going on this week, it seems very clearly that all the questions are leading us in kind of a progressive order. One leads to the next, no matter how you answer that question. If you remember, if you were here, by way of review on July 3rd, the first question that was asked is, how can we know that there's a God? And in the asking of that question, what we're seeking to examine is, is there a being strong enough, big enough, wise enough to have created the universe and the world as it is? We're going to have to have some explanation to how we got here and uh, all that falls out of that. Is there a being that is that wise and strong enough? And if there is, then the question becomes, is he with that kind of power and wisdom then thus able to communicate to us in a way that we can understand? 200 nations, literally thousands of languages, the way in which we all express ourselves through words, can God communicate to us through a book that could endure all the tests of time come down to us in this age and give us the guidance and the instructions that we need to understand this world and to understand ourselves. And if there is a God of such a magnitude, and if He chose to communicate to us in His Word, could He also limit Himself? Could He lower Himself? Come into this world in the form of a human being, live among us, experience what we experience... And as the result of that, be at the end a substitute sacrifice for our sins. Last week, uh, Hiram examined that third question. As he looked at the most important person that has ever lived. And from John chapter 1, he made some observations that are at the heart of all that we're looking at in life's biggest questions this month. And from John chapter 1, observed from the text that Jesus is the eternal God. He is the perfect human. He is the promised Messiah. He is the remedy for sin, and He is the only way to God. You see, the question that was answered so well last week leads us naturally to the question that we ask today. Because however we answer the questions, we're looking for the existential questions to be answered. Where did I come from? Why am I here? And where am I going? I've got to have an adequate answer. And if there is a God, and if He has chosen to communicate through the Bible, and if in the Bible He has communicated to us that He came among us as the promised Messiah, and He died for our sins, then it leads us to a realization that there's a problem that we all face, and we must have it resolved. And there's our question for today. What must I do to be saved? You know, I read that several centuries ago, outside of Windsor Castle in England, that there was a sentinel soldier who was watching guard over the castle. And the man that came to relieve him from his duty accused him of falling asleep on his post. And as it has been throughout much of history, there is a penalty ascribed for such an action, and that's death. Because if someone dies at the post, then they leave everybody else exposed. And so he stood before the king of England, condemned to die. But he said, I was not asleep and I can prove it. And so it was his word against the other guards, but the king had already held him under a sentence of condemnation and said, what proof would you give of your innocence? And the man said, on this particular night, at midnight, 
in which I was accused of being asleep, I heard the bells of St. Paul's Cathedral ring 13 times. Well, they couldn't believe it. The king could not uh, believe that from five miles away he could have heard the bell in the first place. And such a preposterous story that it rang 13 times. And so they went to St. Paul's Cathedral and there they talked to the curators of the bell. And embarrassed, they said, on this particular night, there was a malfunction with the tongue of the bell. And indeed, of all nights, on this one night, it rang 13 times. And on the basis of that, the king pardoned this soldier who, history says, lived to be a hundred years old. He was first condemned and then he was justified. You know, that's a great story for him, but that is not the story for you and me. We cannot say that we are innocent of the crime of which we are charged. Instead, we find ourselves guilty. The book of Romans, in Romans chapter 1 and verse 14 through 17, tells us what the entire book is about, that we find ourselves in need of the gospel message, the good news of God, and that message is that by faith in Jesus Christ we can be saved, we can be justified. And as we look at that and we see that hope, we come to see the challenge against that hope. And the challenge is that we all find ourselves in a need of the gospel that we're lost, that we have chosen to either violate the will of God or we have fallen short of His glory. And so to that end, the Apostle Paul immediately sets out to prove this. In Romans chapter 1, in verse 18 through 32, he tells us that every Gentile is a sinner. In Romans chapter 2, verse 1 through 21, every Jew is a sinner. And thus we get to the inevitable conclusion that everyone is a sinner. Romans chapter 3, verse 10 and verse 23. And yet, against that particular challenge and hopelessness is a message of hope. In Romans chapter 3 and verse 24, where we find that we are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, God wanted to show His righteousness. And so He took those offenses that were before unpunished. And by the shedding of blood, by the acceptance of faith, He sent His Son, and so He could be righteous in the present. He could be just and He could be the justifier of all of those who have faith in Jesus. That's the message of hope. The message of redemption. It's the message of justification. That word that is used right there is explained for us in Romans chapter 5. As we walk through Romans chapter 5 that we see that there's great reason for us to have hope. And that hope is because of the peace of Christ. Romans chapter 5 and verse 1. That that hope that we have is because we can stand in this grace. We have the ability to stand before God through Christ, verse 2. And we rejoice. We rejoice in hope, verse 2. We rejoice in our tribulations, even our problems, verse 3. And we rejoice in God, verse 11. In the end, we're going to be saved through Christ, verse 9 and verse 10. Unlike that Roman soldier, we cannot stand and say we're innocent, verse 12 and verse 19. But because of Jesus' innocence, verse 21, we can have life, verse 20 and 21. You see, unlike the soldier, we're not saved by the bell. We are saved by the blood. As we examine the question that's asked today, I want us to see what must I do to be saved is a question that is asked three times in the age of... Uh, Christianity. As we see this call for justification, 
This need for justification in Romans chapter 5. The idea that through being justified we can be set free, we can be made right, we can be made righteous with God. As we come to understand it's a possibility, we ask ourselves, well, how can I have that? Three different occasions in which this question is asked after the church is established, or as it is, what must I do to be saved? The first time that this question is asked is by a group of thousands of Jews. As we find them present on the day of Pentecost, one of the high and holy days of the old law, they were gathered there to worship according to the old law, the law of Moses, and they hear this message about Jesus, and they see the power of Jesus at work through the apostles being able to speak to every one of them in their own language. And at the end of a convicting message about Jesus, they say, Brethren, what shall we do? Acts 2 and verse 37. The second time it is asked, it is asked by an individual, a leader among those Jews, a man by the name of Saul. He was from Tarsus. And as he comes face to face with Jesus, and they converse about his need of conversion, he says, according to Acts 22 and verse 10, also seen in Acts chapter 9 and verse 6, he says, Lord, what shall I do? The third time that that question is asked is asked in a different part of the world. It is asked by a different ethnicity. It is asked by an unnamed Gentile, a jailer, who says in Acts chapter 16 and verse 30, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And even though that question is asked a different way, in all three of those different accounts, they are all asking the same thing. And in this one of life's greatest questions... I want us to examine four implications that come out of the question, what must I do to be saved? Notice them with me. That first of all, the question, what must I do to be saved, saved, implies that there is something active. You'll notice that they say on all three occasions, what shall or what must I do? There's a recognition on their part that there was something that they had to do. There was something specific that had to be done. What must I do? Now, if you go and Google that, that's where some confusion is going to begin. I would challenge you to go and just type in, as I did in the preparation for this lesson, that question, what shall I do to be saved? And you're going to get a variety of answers, and they're going to differ from one another. And listen, I don't believe that there is anybody in any of those instances who have ill intent. I don't believe that they're trying to hurt anybody. And yet they give different answers with regard to this. And we're going to look before this lesson is concluded at the answer that was given on these three occasions. But I want you to notice that they all saw that there was something specific to be done. There was a what to be addressed. And all of those who answer this in their uh, giving of answers on the internet or anywhere you go to try to, to divine that answer, they're going to say there's something specific that God has told you that you need to do. Now as we consider that fact, we need to understand at the very beginning of this that there is something that we cannot do in order to be saved. There is something specific that no matter who we are, we cannot hope to achieve. And that's the part that God must supply. 
You see, we have to come to a realization at the beginning of this study that God had to supply. He had to keep the promise of the one that was promised, the Messiah, that He had to come and give His atoning blood to justify us, to make us right with Him. No matter who we are, we can't do that without the gift of His Son. And so the Scriptures make that clear to us throughout that God had to provide the answer for us. It says it in the Hebrews writer's language in this way, in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14, that because we are made in, as flesh and blood, He Himself likewise took part of the same, that through death He might save them who were through the fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage, because God does not send His help to angels, but to Abraham's descendants. So that He might be a faithful and merciful high priest... He had to be made like unto his brethren in all things. He himself being tempted, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Hebrews 2, 14 through 18. What the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God in sending his Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin condemned sin in the flesh. Romans chapter 8 and verse 3. God made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21. We see that He Himself bore our wounds in His body so that we could be dead to sin and alive to righteousness. By His wounds we are healed, 1 Peter 2 and verse 24. He was revealed to take away our sins and in Him there is no sin, 1 John chapter 3 and verse 5. And so we come to understand that to be saved, there had to be a sacrifice given. That blood had to flow, the innocent for the guilty. It has always been that way according to the justice of the God who made us and who revealed Himself to us in His Word. It seems to me that from the very beginning of sin, there had to be sacrifice that was made. Whether it was the animal for Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3, or if it was the worship that God calls for from Cain and Abel in Genesis chapter 4, God has always said that there has to be innocence put in the place of the guilty. And this leads us to a concept that would reign from uh, the time of the patriarchs through the law of Moses all the way to the death of Jesus Christ. You know, we see it on the time in which the Israelites found themselves in bondage in uh, Egypt for over 400 years. And as they find themselves ready to leave that land, there they are uh, facing God's pronouncement that there's going to be a tenth and a final plague that would cause the Pharaoh to relent. He was going to bring about the death of the firstborn. And so the children of Israel had to provide what Scripture calls the Passover lamb. And that Passover lamb would be taken and the blood of that lamb would be put upon the doorpost and uh, as God passed through, He would pass over those who had the blood applied to their door. When you look at the Passover lamb, what's amazing is how much it demonstrates and reveals Jesus Christ. When you look at the Passover lamb in Exodus chapter 12, you will find that it had to be without blemish. It had to be without spot. Exodus 12 and verse 5. And in the New Testament, we see that Jesus was one who was tempted in all points like we are and yet without sin. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15. That that lamb had to be taken in the prime of its life. Exodus 12 and verse 5. And so Jesus was taken in the prime of his life. Our best estimates in his early 30s. We also see that Jesus 
is like that lamb, in that that lamb was the best of the flock. Exodus chapter 12 and verse 5. And Jesus, the Son of God, came down from heaven. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 and verse following. And as we look at this lamb, we see that this lamb was separate from the flock. Exodus chapter 12 and verse 9. And Jesus was separated from sinners. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 22 through 24. The blood had to be sprinkled of the lamb. Exodus chapter 12 verse 7 and following. And Jesus' blood has to be sprinkled upon our hearts. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 24. No bone of that lamb could be broken. Exodus chapter 12 verse 5 through verse 9. And so it was with Jesus that not a bone of him was broken according to John chapter 19 and verse 32. When we look at what is said with regard to the lamb that was slain for our sins, we come to see that there's a response that's to be made. John the Baptist came into this world saying, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. John 1 and verse 29. It was a message so important that he repeated it frequently. John chapter 1 and verse 36. And so we see that the Lamb had to be slain for us. Jesus, Revelation 5 and verse 12. We, are, we overcome and we're washed by the blood of the Lamb. Revelation chapter 7 and verse 14. As the people on Pentecost and as Saul comes face to face. And as the, the jailer will look at more closely in a moment, find themselves in a need of salvation, they realize that there is something specific. You see, they had to accept on that night in Egypt, on the tenth plague, that that sacrifice was necessary. Exodus chapter 12, verse 3 through 5. And we must accept that the Lamb's sacrifice is necessary. On that night, they had to have the blood applied. And so it is today that that blood must be applied to our sins. They had to keep that memorial ongoing. It was a high and holy day until the law was no longer in effect. And so we find ourselves not only in need of contacting the blood, but once we have, we must continue to live faithfully, walk steadfastly, Acts 2.42, so that the blood of the Lamb will continually be applied to our sins, 1 John chapter 1 and verse 7. You see, what we learn from this question, what we see from God's righteousness and His plan throughout the ages is that we need a sacrifice that we cannot make for ourselves. It is something specific. And as we begin that walk of, of, of privileges and blessings and of duties and responsibilities, there's something specific that is to be done. What? But this question, what must I do to be saved, involves a second implication. It involves something imperative. What must I do? As we look at that imperative, that question, we find it said a little different way. When you look at two of the accounts that are given for us, what the individuals say, and those individuals are the folks on the day of Pentecost, and those, uh, the Saul of Tarsus himself, they say, what shall I do? Now, somebody may look at that and say, is this something optional? Is this a take it or leave it proposition? No, it is a necessity. It is something that must be done. For the people on Pentecost, the what that must be done stood between them and the remission of sins. Acts chapter 2 and verse 38. And for Saul... 
The what that he must do stood between him and having his sins washed away. Acts chapter 22 and verse 16. It means an obligation, that which must be done to change a state or condition. That's what that word shall means. But then we see the word must as it's used in the other two occasions. Where Jesus says, you go and you'll be told what you must do. Or you have the, the question put, as we often say it, it's the way our, our sermon's title is constructed. The Philippian jailer says, what must I do to be saved? That's something compulsory. That is something that we are obliged that we have to do. But what I want you to see in all of these cases is there was a recognition that this was not something that they could choose to opt to do, whatever they wanted to do, that they could walk away from it. But if they wanted what only God could provide for the sin problem that we all have, they must, they had to do that. It's important for us to ask the question, if we are going to have salvation, what must be the case? In the first place, we must know that we are, are lost. That can be a very difficult thing for us to come face to face with. And that is to recognize our lostness. You know, if I understand that parable in Luke chapter 15, where Jesus is eating with the, 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 the tax collectors and the sinners, and the scribes and the Pharisees grumble against them, Jesus then launches into three parables. The parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost uh, coins, and the parable of the lost son. When we see in that last particular parable, Jesus sets up that parable so that everybody in that story represents the individuals in verse 1 and 2. When we go back and look at that, it's very clear to me that in the context, Jesus is being represented by the Father in that parable. And of course, the Heavenly Father is as well. The son that was lost in the far country, the prodigal son, is represented, it seems a representative of those tax collectors and those sinners. So who did that boy who stayed home, who did he represent? He represented the scribes and the Pharisees. Now in the attitude that they persisted in, Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees, you shall in no wise enter the kingdom of heaven. It would seem in that state of mind that they were lost. And that this boy who stayed home, though he professes that he never sinned against his God, in the attitude of heart that he had, was lost. He never left home, but he was lost. The difference was the prodigal son knew, and he came back home. But this boy did nothing about it. Or what about in Luke chapter 18? There's a tax collector and a Pharisee who go to the temple to pray. And the Pharisee stood and he prayed thus with himself. And as he prayed, he said, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men are, extortioners, adulterers, and even like this tax collector. And then that man, that tax collector, stood over in the corner and would not so much as lift his eyes to heaven, but said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, that man went to his house justified rather than the other. Is it not so that the condition of heart of that older son at home and of that uh, Pharisee in the temple in Luke chapter 18 is the kind of heart that will not recognize that that one is lost. And with that kind of a heart, one will never take the steps necessary to be saved. If we're going to be saved, we must acknowledge and understand that we're lost. But not only must we acknowledge that, we must 
not only see it, we must also want to do something about it. You see, it's possible for us to let things like apathy and worldliness and materialism keep us, even though we know that we're not in the right state of mind, keeps us from responding to the grace and the sacrifice of Jesus. It would seem to me that when you look at men like Felix and Agrippa, that they fall into that category. Felix hears the great Apostle Paul preach of righteousness and self-control and the judgment to come, and he even trembles. He understands the message is right, but there are other things in the way, and so he doesn't have enough desire to overcome those factors. What about Agrippa? In Acts chapter 26, who hears the impassioned plea of the Apostle Paul, and he says, in a short time you would persuade me to be a Christian. What about the rich young ruler? He comes running to Jesus. text says that Jesus loved him in Mark chapter 10. And as he comes to him, he has such a good moral life. And yet Jesus says there's one thing in your life that's missing. And he knew that Jesus was right and he went away sorrowfully. If salvation is going to be mine, it is imperative. It is a must not only that I acknowledge that I'm lost, but that I desire to be saved. And I also must be humble enough to obey God. You know, isn't that Naaman? Naaman knows that he's a leper, and he knows that he needs to be cleansed of that. He hears that there's a prophet in Israel who can help him with that. He's given what God says to do, and yet he resists that in his pride and in his anger. And until he submits to the will of God, he is a leper. He is destined for death. As I think about those individuals present on the day of Pentecost, or Saul as he comes face to face with his Lord, or as I look at that jailer in Acts 16... They seem to have met all of those conditions. They were lost. And they knew it. They had a great desire to be saved. And in their desire to be saved, they humbled themselves and did what God said to do. Hey, we can see how this is one of life's greatest questions because of what's implied in the question. That there is something specific, but also that there is something imperative But third, this question is so important because involved in it is the implication that there is something personal to be done. Do you notice that with all of the accounts? And I say that even though that on Acts chapter 2's occasion where Jesus is preached, that you'll find the crowd responding. And they respond in the first person plural. They say, what shall we do? But look at the response. In Acts 2 and verse 38, Peter says to the group, you must all repent and each one of you must be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. I also recognize that in Acts chapter 16 that uh, Paul and Silas are not just face to face with the jailer. That's how it begins. But ultimately, it's the jailer and his household. And as they preach a sermon to them, it's not just the jailer who is wrestling with the gospel message, but every individual in the household had to hear the gospel and had to respond individually. That being the case, I come to understand that this is something that is personal. I'm grateful that it's personal and not something that is inherited. There are a great many passages that we can look to, but for the sake of time, Ezekiel chapter 18 and verse 20 is powerful in its truth that says, The soul that sins, it shall die. The iniquity of the Father will not rest upon the Son, nor the iniquity of the Son rest upon the Father, but the righteousness of His righteousness shall be upon Himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon Himself. 
I'm so thankful that it is not because of what somebody else does or does not do, but my own individual response. That I don't bear the guilt of others. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10 that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. That each one may receive the things which we have done in the body according to what we individually have done, whether good or bad. As I see the personal nature of salvation, I realize it's something personal. It's not something that I've inherited from up the line. But I also see that this is something that's personal and not something that somebody else can do on my behalf. It's sad that there is an entire religious group out there that teaches that one could be baptized for those who have already died, for the remission of their sins. I appreciate greatly their conviction and their sincerity, but it's not found in Scripture at all. You see, salvation's not like the flu or like COVID. You can't catch that from somebody else. The decisions that someone else makes, whether it's our parents or our spouse or our children or our friends, however they respond... That's not going to affect our salvation in that we must respond. And however we respond, we can't do it for them. I'm impressed as I see this great question asked three times in the Christian age. There is something personal that must be done. But finally, this question, what must I do to be saved, involves with it also that there is something active to be done. What must I do? The folks on Pentecost, they hear the message about Jesus. And when they hear that and they realize that they're guilty of the the crucifixion, the same as you and I are, they ask, what shall we do? Can you imagine how devastating it would have been if they would have heard in response, there's not anything you can do? That's not what they're told. Peter, as they've stopped his sermon, says... Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is unto you and unto your children and unto those that are afar off, as many as the Lord our God shall call. And with many other signs did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourself from this perverse generation. And they that gladly received his word were baptized. Well, we go to Acts chapter 9 and Acts chapter 22. When Saul says, Lord, what will you have me to do? Jesus says, go to to Damascus and there it will be told. Three days later, Ananias comes and he says, why do you delay? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling upon the name of the Lord. And then we come and we see what is said in Acts chapter 16, where the prison doors are open. Paul and Silas are standing there. He says, none of us have escaped. He falls down on his knees, the jailer does, uh, recognizing the power of God. And he says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now he's told, believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved in your household. There's a very popular site out there called Got Questions. It aims to show the difference in the question of salvation that's answered by Christianity versus all the other world religions. And what it says is that unlike any other world religion, there's not any work or effort that we can do in order to have our salvation. But in that same website they say, that it is faith in the death and the resurrection of Christ that causes us to be saved. The question is, is faith a work? Jesus believed that it was. In John 6, 27 and 28, the crowd came to him and they said, uh, Sirs, what work must we do to do the works of God? And Jesus says, this is the work of God that you believe in the name of the Son of God. 
Now there's nothing that we can do to put God in our debt to save us. But when that jailer asked, what must I do to be saved? What does a Philippian jailer know about Jesus? What does his household know? And so we see beginning in verse 32 that Paul and Silas teach him about Jesus. And as a result of that, we see that he washes their wounds the same hour of the night and is baptized. He and his household immediately, they bring them back and they eat together and they rejoice greatly having believed on Jesus. Believing on Jesus. Whenever someone is told to do something, they're told how to do it and what's involved in it. When we see the the eunuch on the road and he's reading from Isaiah in Acts 8, verse 35 and 36, we see that eunuch being taught about Jesus. And as he does, he sees water and he says, What hinders me from being baptized? Acts 8, 35 and 36. In Acts 18, 8, you have Crispus. He is the leader of the synagogue. And he is convicted in his faith. He's like the Corinthians who here believed and were baptized. There's something specific. We don't put God in our debt. But they're all told the same thing. I don't think I've been preaching for 40 minutes, but I do see the clock. I'm surprised as you are, or maybe you're not surprised. Let me close with two stories very quickly. And that question about salvation, people are asking it everywhere. I have a friend today, I didn't know him at the time, who was trying to get the answer to this question. He was reading his Bible, and in his Bible he saw a connection. And in seeing that connection of baptism to salvation, he asked the preacher at the church where he was going, can I be baptized? And he was told, we baptize in the fall. You can wait till then to be baptized. He began thinking in light of what he saw, what if I get in a car wreck and die? He had one of those Android phones at the time. You remember that? The ones that you were in danger. If you plugged it in, it might blow up. He said, what if I'm charging my phone and it blows up on me? That wasn't good enough for him. And so he began to search Google. And as he did, he, talked, he, looked, he looked up the importance of baptism. And eventually he got to World Bible School. And as he was examining that, he was let the, the long story short. He found somebody. There was no teacher uh, in a church who were bad, was badgering him. He saw the connection. He wanted to find somebody who would teach what to do to be saved that was consistent with what he was reading. And when he heard that message, he responded to that. He did what everyone must do, no matter where we're from, no matter who we are. God has one plan of salvation for all. Two weeks before his death. There was a man, a very unlikely source for this. The quote that you see there, Redemption is tailor-made for the wretched. Tukey Williams was on death row for four murders he was purported to have committed while he was the leader of the Crips gang in Los Angeles. And while he maintained his innocence till the end, Tukey was in this interview talking about the redemption that he had found. He says redemption is not predicated upon your race or your color or your social stratum or your religious background. Redemption is for everybody. That's the beauty of it. He said, redemption is tailor-made for the wretched. Now that word wretched is a Bible word. It's used to describe people like the Laodiceans who thought that they were rich and increased with goods and had need of nothing. They thought they were just fine. And John, Jesus, in John's writing, says they're wretched. 
And then there's those folks in James chapter 4 and verse 9, those individuals who are living a, a very ungodly life. And James 4 9 calls them wretched. But you see, wretchedness describes so great as the Apostle Paul. We saw a great, heard a great lesson on Wednesday night from Ty, and he said, in quoting Romans 7 24, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ. We're not all on death row. We may not all lose our physical lives because of our sins. But all of us deserve spiritual death. That question that was asked in the Bible is our question. What must I do to be saved? But the blessed assurance is that anybody that wants to be saved can be saved. This morning it may be that you have a desire to act on that particular question and need. It may be that you felt like maybe you were too young or maybe you didn't understand at the previous time and maybe you need to be baptized for the remission of your sins. Or maybe you find yourself in a situation where your baptism was not like the baptism of the Bible is described, a burial in which you rise to walk in newness of life. Maybe you were not buried in water. Or maybe you're just not sure. Or maybe you were told that you were saved and then that you could be baptized as a sign of faith or as an act of obedience, that's not how they did it in the New Testament. They believed, they repented, and they were baptized. Jesus sent His disciples saying, He that believes and is baptized shall be saved. Maybe you've not done it in that way. It's the way the Lord wants you to do so that you can get the benefit of His Son's blood applied to your sins. Maybe that question is so personal. You need to respond to the invitation. Here's something else. Maybe you don't want to do it publicly. In front of everybody. Maybe you want to do it privately. Find one of us. As far as I know, it was Philip and the eunuch. There may have been a few others, but we're not told about them. We can take care of that if you have doubts with regard to it. If this is your invitation, won't you come as together we stand and sing?